0: Hi, welcome to Relevant Tones. I am your host, Matthew Dosland, and I am joined today by the composer and chair of music at Hunter College and City University of New York, Suzanne Farron. Suzanne, thank you for joining me this morning. How are you doing?
1: I'm well. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Matt.
0: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on and really excited to discuss your upcoming projects, what you have going on, and It's some really cool stuff, some really interesting things, interesting instrumentation, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. So I think we might as well just jump in right off the bat and start with the postponed concert. Unfortunately, it was postponed, but it's rescheduled. We have a date, May 23rd at the Miller Theater, Columbia University in the city of New York if you're in New York, there are a lot of people who are, you should go. Tell us a little bit about the concert. It seems to be, there's a world premiere on it, and Mm -hmm. a few kind of retrospectives kind of giving a brief overview, as much as one can in one concert, of your composition. So tell us a little bit about the programming and, and what's going on.
1: Sure, yeah, it is, you hit it, you know, it's a combination of kind of looking back on my work since the earliest piece on the program is from 2007 a look at my works for solo instruments interspersed with excerpts from the opera dolce la morte for counter tenor and ensemble uh so it kind of goes weaves back and forth between those works and then the second half is the new piece and also an instrumental work and and then a world premiere of a piece called their hearts are columns
0: wonderful so I think the, the thing most interesting right away is just the world premiere. So yeah,
2: sure.
0: it's in, I would say, eclectic instrumentation. Nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't think nothing just super wild, but it is odd for, for those who haven't seen. Soprano, harp, percussion, double bass, and an instrument maybe not everybody knows, the onde martineau, which is a really cool instrument. I've never played one. I've never really like heard one live, but the mm-hmm. recordings, it's this gorgeous kind of sine wave electronical instrument. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the instrument? What brought you to including it in this in this piece?
1: Yeah, great. Well, it was very simple, why the OND was there. Um, Ross Carr, when he approached me about doing this project way back in 2018 or 2019, I can't remember, but it was supposed to be premiered in April of 2020 and something was going on around then you don't, I you don't, know. don't yeah no, I've, I've forgotten that. i anyway. kind of spaced out about it but um so we're back we're back in that in that world now and what ross said was okay you can choose from this instrument group um you just have to have the armed in there
0: <laughs> it was you can do whatever you want yeah. with and, and i believe the international Contemporary yes. ensembles and ball. You can exactly. take any of these amazing musicians, you just yes. have to include yes. Neil Martin. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah, we, fun. And, yeah, and you play the instrument yourself. yourself, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, and I play in the concert. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. 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 So
0: what so, was like, it like record. learning yes. that? I mean, it's
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's it's wild.
0: It's a little bit of a stringed theremin almost. Like I don't know how to explain it to people. Maybe you you'd, you'd yeah. do a better job.
1: So the engineer that the reason the instrument has such a weird name is that it's just the last name of the engineer, Martineau, right? Yes. Maurice Martineau made the instrument. And he was an electrical engineer and a cellist. And if you just make a baby out of those two things, you get the old Martineau. And he worked in the telegram, you know, the, uh, the, the telegraph off uh, effort in the First World War in France. And he was sending signals from the Eiffel Tower and that was the big technology at the moment was that you know communications was going to be how they would win the war and he the the origin story is that he was up there and had this flash of why do human beings use their intellectual and creative powers to create things that kill each other and why can't we make something as amazing with the technology and the minds we have when we're not in a war situation and uh so he said he was either going to throw himself off the tower or he was going to build something beautiful out of the technology he was using it's very very
0: profound yeah yeah we're we're glad that he made the instrument and it really it really is a gorgeous tone Um, you know it's a it's a very warm instrument i think Mm -hmm. and it has this gorgeous the when i was listening to some of the playing that you've done uh, i've been able to find and things like that and and others it's very string like very like i mean the the sound Mm -hmm. is just like a cello or viola or i mean depending on what register you're in it's it's gorgeous sound and Mm -hmm. what is this piece in particular about what are you Mm -hmm. what's their hearts or columns
1: so it's a song cycle with different poets in different languages it's kind of a um almost it's not a pastiche because these pieces didn't exist before but it for me it sort of had that feeling of like these are poems that the thing they have to do with each other is that i hear music coming from them and i can hear elise um as the soloist bringing them to life and uh, I had a collection of a lot of different things and what ended up in the piece were four poems two by Proust which actually is not really a poem it's it's kind of a it's not an essay either it's almost like a letter poetic prose really short work you know which is different for Proust and uh it's beautiful and interesting and funny and he speaks from a female voice he uses the female voice in, mm-hmm. in this piece yeah and that book ends the song cycle and then in the middle <clears throat> and then this is where we get to the hearts um, or columns in the middle are three translations of Haifas and Rumi from a Iranian po- a poet named Sirus Atabe who left Iran and lived in Germany until he died in 1996 and wrote poetry in German, and of course, he, he had begun his life writing poetry in Persian, Farsi, but then he he started also writing in his adopted language and tr- translating the classics into German. I came across this German poem one day, and I thought this is the craziest thing I've ever read in my life and so not like any other German poetry that I've experienced. And then I, you know, looked into it and saw, of course, it's not. It's um, it was it was roomy and it just had a totally different fresh feeling to me coming at the poetry that I kind of knew in translation into English but had never experienced through this other portal and so one of the poems is called inside and translated means in the inside of houses their hearts stand like columns in this columnless world it is dizzying but their thoughts were peace in this peaceless world. And that became a kind of cornerstone for me in the work because even though I had technically finished it before whatever that was that happened in 2020, uh, when we then had that experience over these years, that particular poem especially just started taking on so many different meanings. You know, it's a 13th century poem and it really spoke to the moment.
0: It's an interesting layering of influence because you have Mm -hmm. that that original poetry by Rumi and then Mm -hmm. your relationship with that poetry that exists from a different translation.
2: Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then you
0: get this uh, German translation and you you must speak German and read it.
1: Sort. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Enough. N- nothing, nothing, nothing too impressive, but yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, we'll probably get into it, but I, it's not the language, you know, the best, but there are, there no. are a number that, you know, it's quite impressive. <laughs> I think. But th- there's this layering of intention and identity. And I, I think you've talked yeah, yeah. about it a little bit before, and I just want to dive a little yeah. deeper if we can into this sure. layering of identity that you've talked about, because there's, when you're working with poetry or you're working with a separate text uh, you've done a number of pieces for voice and instruments Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: you have performers you have writers you have composers how how do you put yourself onto that and then not strip away everything from the other artists involved or vice versa how do they get involved without how is it equal partnership
1: well, a lot of the people I work with are dead, so that that helps. really does change the dynamic of the collaboration. <laughs> unfortunately, um, I mean, uh, yeah, and I, it's it's actually a long there's a, there's a longish story related to that, but um, I do have these kind of I hope lifelong conversations with the poets that I set. I'm still talking to Michelangelo about the work. You know i'm still hearing it differently and hearing the text differently and i i think of these poems poems and poetry in general and probably um, maybe art in general but certainly poetry as you know this kind of open field and in terms of a translation into music which i do think is a kind of translation process so i take a poem and i wonder does this work through the language of music for me am i the vessel for this work and i would go even further to say not just am i the vessel but am i a vessel for this particular poem because these are all in general although Atabe is maybe not well known generally certainly rumi and hafez are and i am one of a gazillion people over a millennia that have looked at these poems and have been attracted to them you know and And so it's I'm one of many people who encounter and feel they have a response to this poem. And I hope that I do justice not to. I I don't hear the poem as this separate thing from the poet. I really hear the poet talking to us about the poetry, remembering the poem to us, being startled by by his or her own language, you know. Mm-hmm. um misremembering or getting kind of fixated so i kind of hear the poet in a musical process with their own language if that makes sense
0: yeah i i think it does um it's always interesting just to hear how how one composer sets themselves in that relationship because it's, it's a tricky one when yeah. when using other people's Everyone's using art to inspire themselves. It's how yes. how yes.
1: that
0: layer how that layering yes. goes. Absolutely,
1: yeah. yes.
0: A little bit on this piece, as well as Dolce La Morte, which is an Italian covering. the mm-hmm. You briefly mentioned it. The letters that Michelangelo wrote to uh, Tommaso, expressing love and oh. a relation, a willingness for a relationship that cannot exist. <laughs> um, just in the times, uh, (laughs) for a variety of reasons. What has drawn you to so many different languages? Because you've written in Italian, Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. German,
0: you've set German, um, Mm -hmm. and you are, we can talk about it at some point, but Maccabea would be in, would that be in Spanish or Portuguese?
1: Yeah, so it's going to be in both. It's going to exist in both. Yeah. But I'm currently working on it in Spanish, in the Rio Platense dialect.
0: Okay, so it's specific. Yeah. Right. yeah,
1: it's very specific.
0: What what has drawn you to all of these different mm-hmm. languages?
1: Something that helps clarify maybe or puts a little bit of a frame on this is that if you've noticed, I don't say anything in English. Um, yes, yeah, it's I have. kind of staring, you know, it's 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 right there. And and I think and I think about these languages as instruments that require an investment. And you they are a color of their own. So like I have my bassoon writing, I have my cello writing, you know, these this is the result of much investment on my part to understand what I like about these instruments and how I want to explore them. And hopefully in each piece, digging deeper into sounds that I find are, you know, reveal something to me. and of course the repertoire that exists it's through the repertoire and it's through experimentation and working with a person unless i have the instrument myself and the and language kind of works in that way too it's like i have the bassoon color and then i have french and for me right now those are similar worlds not similar to each other but similarly um autonomous worlds right so Uh, What is the color of this piece? Well, the color is these instruments and French is part of the color. And I think it's kind of a similar process to what I do when I write for solo instruments. Like I really spend a lot of time getting in there. And language is an opportunity for me to do the same thing, especially if it's a language that's like at arm's length. So it's not so distant that I, I can't reach it, but it's not either my native language or the language I speak at home regularly. So for example in the song cycle the the language that's most distant is French and I had to I've never studied French. I don't speak even though I play a French instrument, you know, it's embarrassing but I never studied French. <laughs> um so you know I had to get um I I my husband speaks too many languages and so he 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 helps me, you know, making sure that I understood phonetically. And then, you know, I do what a singer does. And I understand each particular word. And then I listen for what music is contained in those words, how much tension is in this word? And what is the musical time of this moment? Is it kind of, um, I've been thinking lately about metrical time versus kind of operatic time, and sometimes the piece will Mm -hmm. kind of undo itself and kind of go into an operatic timing. And sometimes the piece is driven by instruments that are keeping it more into a grid, a metrical kind of world.
0: So when you talk about operatic timing, is that more of the free, let's say, almost like that recitative kind of like, there's something happening in a space of time, but not really governed by that meter, that continuing? Yeah,
1: well, I think there's a couple of things. Like there's a meter that's a kind of um, skeleton that happens mm-hmm. and then there's this this charge of the singer's ability to reflect while singing which doesn't always happen when you when you're you know when you're interpreting a text sometimes you're just kind of giving it and sometimes you're really reflecting on what you're saying as you're saying it and I think that that comes from this is my little pet theory, but I don't know. Um, (laughs) I think it comes from the feeling that there's kind of an aura of plot that exists around you and you're in it. And so you're constantly, as the operatic voice, you're constantly interacting and hitting up against or driving or propelling or disrupting this plot, right? And- And so that that affects time, I think, because that's part of the reflection process that happens with the singer, in this case, while she is delivering the text. And it was amazing how Elise understood that in rehearsal. I I bring this up because it's kind of a newish thought for me or a new awareness that I have about my work and about music in general to say, okay, here, this should be very metrical and kind of we want to feel a sharpness to the edge of what this is Mm -hmm. and then this phrase is in operatic time and it was didn't need any more explanation than that she just took it
0: that's wonderful that's a really interesting concept and i can see yeah it depends a lot of things are very performer dependent how a performer ends up interacting with the work but that's that's amazing to find that that level of collaboration that's Really wonderful when things click like that.
1: Yeah, and it's it's. I think it's also like the ability to move within performance practices because that yeah. kind of sense of operatic timing is really different from chamber music timing, where you have these equals that are interacting with each other and in a, in, a mm-hmm. in agreement about a pulse and um, all of those things and trading. And when you're in oh, an gosh. operatic time, it's not the same at all. <laughs> yeah
0: and anyone who's played in an opera pit knows that you have to follow one person yeah
1: yeah the conductor you can decide which yeah, exactly. person that is but yeah. it is
0: one person
1: yeah. yeah 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 and conducting opera is totally different from you of know course. yeah
0: and chamber music is always such a collaborative process and like you said it's it's equal partnership usually and if something happens in the moment it's usually it's agreed upon there's a there's a way of of governing that yeah um
1: I wonder if it's kind of deep, different equalities, because it's not that the singer is more important necessarily because she's driving, you know, it just may be that she's driving. Yeah.
0: That's a very important point. I often, as as a cellist, Mm. um, I also, (laughs) I often uh, feel like, you know, string quartets the uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i often feel that the violinist is carrying something but the cellist is driving Absolutely. you know there's this there's this idea where you're each allowing the other person to do the thing and that's what's important and like you said you it's not necessarily about equal or who's in the lead it's just you know whose job it is to do
2: something yeah yeah
0: and when you know that it's the singer's job and the singer knows it's their job yeah That can open up a whole realm of artistic possibilities. Exactly. You've been talking a lot about singing, opera. You have a new opera coming I up. do, Macabea, yeah. based on uh Clarice Lispector,
1: yeah. um,
0: her novel A Hora da Estrela, mm-hmm. The Hour of the Sun. She is a Brazilian novelist. Mm-hmm. What drew you? To this novel in particular, mm-hmm. was it something you had been reading? Is it something you read long ago? Has it been sticking around in your mind to do something like this?
1: Yeah, for a long time? yeah. Well, like most opera projects, it's at a glacier <laughs> pace. So this has been going on for ten years, which is insane. Uh, I
0: believe twenty twenty five. Yeah,
1: is the, is the premiere. That's the yeah, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, that's yes. It's it's happening. It's getting off the desk. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the the book is is a an amazing short novel called The Hour of the Star, and written by Clarice Lispector, who passed away in 1978. So, and this was the last book that she wrote that was published during her lifetime, and it was a, it's the story of of this character named Macavaya, and Lispector is a really kind of Ulyssian, incredibly imaginative. female voice in literature in Latin America, and she's very important outside of Brazil. So Brazilians, of course, she's one of the great authors in Portuguese and a voice of Brazil. But she's also her work was translated right away into Spanish and and she's really important in the Spanish speaking world generally. So uh, she's she's definitely she's a big voice and it's a big deal. Um, It's a big honor and a big responsibility to get into her work and bring it to an opera kind of format
0: yeah and that process has been it's been ongoing mm-hmm. like you said mm-hmm. and the libretto i believe is finished maybe you want to speak a little bit about that under perhaps sure. not ideal circumstances yeah
1: so for five years my friend sergio Chefek and i have been working on creating the libretto and you know it's a really interesting process first of all i should say it the hour of the star, when I, rep- when I approached Sergio about it, cause I kept hearing his voice. He was a friend already. I knew his work really well. And I said, you know, do you want to work on this? Like, I wasn't sure if I needed a libretto, you know, I was kind of like, maybe I'm just going to do this somehow. I don't know, like make it myself. Yeah. There are some issues. And, and of course the big one is how do you translate the experience of reading a book that you love, into an experience, a musical experience. That's a translational, an act of translation that's kind of massive. That requires a whole new kind of a reimagining of the work, and it, it truly is an adaptation for that reason, because it's very hard to take a novel and put it into put it on stage. So one of the big issues was for us was um, that took five years to solve, really, maybe four, I would say. what what year Hmm. is it yeah three years 2023 so yeah three years ago Sergio had a big revelation and the problem that we had been working on for maybe two years before that was what do you do with this opera it is a book written by a woman i'm a female also and very few operas written to female stories not just by females right so it's interesting because females are actually pretty highly represented in literature but yet we don't take from them to create operatic works which is kind of i never thought about it until recently and what Clarice does is she often hides behind her characters. She talks to us through, our char- through her characters. And one of them is this character named Rodrigo, who she is the author, who she's definitely speaking through. We know she's speaking through him, not just because it sounds like her, but also because sometimes she'll be like, hey, it's really me now.
0: Right, just a little insert. Yeah, I want you to understand that this is what I'm saying and what exactly
1: it's me. The real, and she'll say the real Clarice specter
0: Yeah, it's really
1: great, and and there's all kinds of things in the book that speak to music. She will say explosion, in parentheses with an exclamation mark. You know, the dedication at the start of the book is a thank you to all kinds of composers including schoenberg and strauss and you know some brazilian composers and really interesting even electronic music she was incredibly educated you know in the arts and and so interesting the way she saw the world obviously so there's so much music embedded in it and then this this protagonist is just talking at us the whole time, the narrator, I mean, not the protagonist. So we have Rodrigo and he just tells us the story of Macabea. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna write an hour and a half of music for a guy on stage singing at us the whole time. You know, <laughs> we didn't come, yeah, you know, I you know I'm not making all this effort to then just have only a male voice capturing all of Clarice's world. It has to flow because that's how she was. And also we don't I'd, I didn't want a monodrama um just someone kind of telling you talking you through it at the same time removing Rodrigo is also problematic and the work would fall apart without him because we need that voice in the work we need her hiding behind him we need this kind of voice of privilege that's part of what she's imagining and without that kind of power dynamic in the work we don't understand the tension Mm -hmm. and so what do you I'd just be like Sergio, what are we gonna do? I can't have this guy singing the whole time. Uh, that's how we would talk about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then one day he just kind of came came to me with this huge libretto. It, it increased by ten times, and he moved the whole thing. Instead of somebody just telling you this story, he moved it into a conspiracy among the characters to kill Maccabea, which is, you know, the story is her death but her death kind of comes about in this indirect way, but we sort of feel like we probably were a part of it, or, you mm-hmm. know, but he makes it really direct that the characters actually created the circumstances for her death actively. And that's the real difference between the book and the libretto. Mm-hmm. Clarissa Spectre, when she wrote the book, she was dying of cancer, but she didn't know it. But it, it reads like she did know it because she says, She makes the character of Rodrigo have to kill Maccabea so that he himself can die. And then of course she reflects on that in her own, in in her the the way she always does to say like, is that real, Am am I talking about myself? When is my turn? And she mentions things like finding the back door exit, leaving quietly through the back door exit. And she passed away pretty soon after. And then in a very terrible twist of fate, um, my dear friend Sergio also passed away, um, and he passed away in April of this past year, almost um, uh, almost a year ago, um, and it was sudden, and it was a huge loss, so it was a lot of composing with the, with pretty intense grief um, and working through that, and I still i am I'm with him every day through his length, through his writing.
0: Yeah, very... Cruel parallel drawn yes. there. Yeah. Um, and when you're working, when you're working with a libretto, and you've kind of come to this this point, and you've you've pulled this layer back, mm-hmm. and you, you're like, okay. Now we've found yeah. this this vision for what the plot needs to be, what the drama yes. is, what you know, how you can move that in an operatic form taking it from that libretto stage and now what i imagine is you're in that instrumentation Mm -hmm. and thematic development Mm -hmm. and the the, Mm -hmm. all of the musical Mm composerly things Mm -hmm. what happens between those two would you Mm -hmm. would you normally still be working with librettists if that's not too odd of a question would you normally still be working and trying to to cut that down and, and imagine different ideas mm-hmm. and different phrasings and things like that? And are you still doing that? Are you?
1: In my head. <laughs> He's with me all the time. Yeah. I'm. Gratefully, he, he did come. We had some rehearsals before he passed away. So he did hear some of the piece, which is great. Uh, and I'm close with his wife, who is um, Graciela Montaldo, and she is the, a professor of literature at Columbia and really an expert on Sergio's work, not only controls his estate, but also is a real expert and love has a lot of love for his work and likes engaging with it. So I have a partner, which is wonderful. But I had Sergio's and and I have her trust and complete confidence, which is a gift um, and an honor. And with Sergio as well, he was very like, it's your turn now, you know, you do it. And You know, what I miss is obviously there's lots of things about him just as a friend and human, um, the conversations about where it's going. I am excited about some of the discoveries I've made in his text and what, what other potentialities exist, you know, for example, there's an aria and it's intended to be sung by one person, but I feel like it actually has the voices of other characters. So there's other characters who kind of intercede and, and participate, and I, I'm just desperate to tell him that and to share that excitement with him and to hope that he thinks it's a good idea, you know? And I, so I I like the company of collaboration. I I like feeling like I can talk to someone and, and he always had a brilliant thing to say to me that would give me energy for the next bit of music I was working on. So it was, he was also a great support and a great encouragement. So I'm working without that, but I'm, finding in the text ways that that i think he was speaking to to all of us about clarice
0: Thank you so much to Suzanne Farron for taking the time to sit down and talk about her music today. If you are interested in playing her music or finding out more about her, visit her website, suzannefarron.com. Relevant Tones has a Patreon. If you would like to support the work myself and my colleagues do on this show, you can become a patron at the $5 or $10 level. Check out our site at Patreon.com slash Relevant Tones. There is some exclusive video content for you there.